And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. I sense a disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the Force. I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Oh no! <laughs> it's a trap! Chewie, get us out of here! You can't run. Help me! R2! This is where the fun begins. And now. Together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Count me in. Hello there, and welcome to Star Wars Monthly Monday number 59. 59er. I'm Chris <laughs> Honeywell, and I'm here as always with Scott Gardner. Help out a 59er. <laughs> Actually, Do I think I that's a 49. 59er. 59 <laughs> one more time. I think okay. we've used this joke before, but it never gets old to me, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Hey, and it's 2014. Can you believe it? Can well, you it believe it? There, I'm like, what is he out of his mind? Yes, it is. <laughs> to them it is. Cool. See, to them, it's like, they're like, what are you talking about? But see, we're recording this, and the year hasn't changed yet, so... Meanwhile, there's somebody listening to this in 2019. Right, or later. <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> Get to the Star Wars. Hello, future people. <laughs> so, yes. Um, how was Christmas for you? Did you have a good Christmas? It was pretty non-eventful, like I like my Christmases. <laughs> I know, you are not a holiday spirit kind of guy whatsoever. No. You know what, though? This year, I was, you know, I'm not going to say I'm, like, not Scrooged up. I'm not, I'm never, like, screw this shit, you know. But, eh, you know, whatever. I just don't, I, I just don't get into it that much. But this year, like, I wasn't, like, grinding my teeth at, like, Christmas music like I usually do. And, like, I had weird, I, I, I was at, um this place where I'm working and they're playing Christmas music and all of a sudden this, now maybe you can, um, maybe you remember this. I never heard this song before. It was called Dominic, the Christmas donkey. <laughs> hee haw, uh, hee haw, hee haw. It's Dominic, the Christmas donkey. And it's very Italian. Uh, Everybody at work is like, Oh God, this song, I, either I hate this song or oh, this song's hilarious. And I'm like, Am I crazy? I've never heard this song. And it was like, sounded like it was recorded in the 50s. And they're like, what do you mean? They play it like on the hour every Christmas all our lives. And I'm like, I've never <laughs> heard it before. But the only Christmas song that made me angry this year was that Band-Aid song that Do They Know It's Christmas Time at All. Oh, God. I yeah. hate that song. I get hostile when I hear it. And somebody... 
like redid it and so it's even remade and out there and it's just that song of like oh so you're enjoying christmas huh well guess what there's other people who aren't <laughs> right don't you feel like a <laughs> jerk every time I, I i hear that song for some reason i i think I of that geldof in the face is what i want oh, to i do. love bob geldof but yeah that song too, pissed me off have done that but that, yeah, you know, you're right because that song it's intended to, you know, while you're so you're celebrating and, and living your wonderful first world life, there's these people in these other countries. And I, every time I hear that song, for some reason, <laughs> I think of I think of the episode of Beavis and Butthead where they stole uh, the old guy. What was the old guy's name on that show? I can't remember. He was basically oh, king of the hill, though. Yeah, you know? yeah, he was. Oh my god, I can't believe I've forgotten his name. But anyway, they steal his credit card and they buy just like all kinds of stupid shit. They clean out a pet store, and at the end of the <laughs> the episode, they're sitting around watching TV, and one of those commercials comes out and, and says, Daddy, by sending in just twenty five dollars a month, you can feed and clothe and educate an entire family. Why don't those people just get credit cards? Then they could eat all they wanted. Maybe they're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I always think, do they care it's Christmas time at all? Right. Because they don't. It's just no. sort of like, hey, man. Uh, oh, I hate it. Pooh, I spit on it. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, not, I was just going to say, not, not, not eventful Christmas. I got one, one present worth mentioning and that was from gerard delatour and yes. i'll go over it was a drawing but i, I want to go over it in the next step next monthly monday because it, it pertains to that, that but let's works. just say getting original art in is amazing you know mm-hmm. you just can't beat it I, you, you know the only thing cut that comes close is like a book that's awesome and that was an really great thing to you know to open it up and be like and it was great because i saw the return address and i'm like oh i know what this is no so, uh, yeah that was great no exaggeration no hyperbole um his drawing that he sent to me his gift to me one of the nicest gifts i got this year uh, absolutely fantastic I'm just going to mention it because I'm sure I would love to save it for Comics Monthly Monday because it's more related to comics than it is to Star Wars. But I'll likely forget, seeing as how that's weeks away to record that episode. So I'll just mention real quick that uh, it's a a drawing by him of the Rocketeer uh, streaking through the sky with the Hollywood Land sign in the background. And it's awesome. I mean, absolutely. Because when I first opened it up, Again, no exaggeration, no hyperbole. I thought that this was something he got done at a con by Darwin Cook. And when I realized that Gerard had drawn it himself, I was like, damn, this guy is a hell of an artist. It's really, it's good, really yeah. fantastic. But uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful piece of art. If you go to uh, Facebook somewhere or other, I posted a picture or a link to it or something. Um, it's either on my page or on the Two True Freaks. I, actually, I'll post it again in the Two True Freaks groups that everybody can see it in case that's not where i posted it before but it's just just an incredible piece of art uh so gerard if you're listening thank you very much because i was very touched that's that's really really awesome and i was also very touched by the uh the note that he wrote on the back which uh is personal and i won't share it but i i 
I'm genuinely touched. I, I yeah, and you know it's it's funny. I I heard he did like twenty one of those for people, and they were all you know they. I mean, judging by yours and mine, and the reaction I've seen by other people, got. I mean, I I think he drew each one specifically with each person in mind. I'm That's sure he cool. did. That's a lot of work, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, it is, and I, I you know, I, I can't even be bothered so, to send yeah, out Christmas cards. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny that that you say that, you know, you kind of had a little more, I, if I interpreted you right, you were saying you had a little more Christmas spirit this year, or at least uh, a little less screwed spirit this year. Instead of the tank being empty, I was running on fumes. There you go. But uh, it's funny because... You know me, I love Christmas. Favorite yeah. holiday and everything. I, I'm a, I'm very much a Christmas guy. I don't know what it was this year. I don't know if Christmas just kind of snuck up on me or what. I mean, I didn't feel like it did. I was aware it was coming from, from quite a ways away and you all that sort of Disney, thing. But... I imagine it's pretty Christmassy around in the, oh, yeah. the hotels. Oh, are you kidding? It's, it's I mean, yeah. it, it's that extra level of magic at Christmas it's jing, time. jing, jingly. I think a lot of what it was was just, you know, I was working and I've been very busy with work and, and the show and I just, I've had very little downtime lately. And so I think that the actual, like, personal holiday celebratory time for me personally, it just, it really did sneak up on me. It's like one day I'd realize, oh my God, Christmas is like, you know, X amount of days away I mean, I had my Christmas shopping done, but it's like Christmas works in stages for me. It's like, you know, you start to get the inkling when, you know, when things are starting to pop up in the stores and, you know, the music's starting to come out and that sort of thing. And then it's like, you know, there's a little bit of that pre-Christmas buying, like, hey, honey, we better start thinking about Christmas. It's right around the corner. And then Thanksgiving hits and it's like, okay, panic time. You know, you got, a, you got you know, X amount of weeks until Christmas and then it's you know buying the presents, getting everything all set, getting the tree up, getting the decorations up, and then you usually have I don't know a week, two weeks, whatever, where you can kind of enjoy it. You know everything's the work is more or less done, at least from a guy's perspective, and now you can kind of enjoy it. It's spending time with the family and the kids and watching all the you know prerequisite holiday movies every year, and that that aspect is where christmas snuck up on me this year i realized like two or three days before christmas that oh my god christmas is like whatever day of the week it was and i haven't seen any i haven't watched a single christmas movie and christmas movies are a big part of christmas for me and somewhere in that whole process as the actual holiday got really close i fell into this weird funk I don't know what it was. I, I, of course, I've been sick, so maybe that was part of it. But it's like it was weird, and I couldn't quite snap out of it. It was like I just wasn't as, as into it as I should have been. So one night, like a couple of nights right before Christmas, I got home. I actually had a little bit of spare time to myself, and I'm flipping channels, and I come across my favorite version of A Christmas Carol, which is the Scrooge movie with Albert Finney as Scrooge. And it had just started. It was right at the beginning of the movie. And I started watching that, and it's like, that was it. That's what it took. You know, was I, I just needed that that one, like, identifier, you know? And then all of a sudden, I was in that spirit. And I gave Logan an early Christmas present this year. I had found the Polar Express on Blu-ray for cheap. It was like seven, eight bucks. 
and I snagged it, and we watched that. Love, love that movie. And it was that much cooler seeing it in Blu-ray. Have you seen that? Have you seen the I've Polar I've never Spr- seen it, oh, no. man. I think you would really, really enjoy that. Plus, I was impressed by the bonus features that were on there, talking all about and showing footage of the actual motion capture stuff that they had to do to make the film. Just so in, so impressed with that. I would love for that to be next December's uh, commentary monthly Monday. If you know, of course, that's a year away, so we'll see what happens between now and then. But that that's definitely a contender for uh, for a commentary. Uh, next Christmas, now that I have it on on Blu-ray and everything, but you know that that just kind of helps snap me out of the funk. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, okay, now it's now I'm I'm with the program. Now it's Christmas, you know, and we could have Christmas. So that was pretty cool. So that's weird. So you and I sort of were meeting in the middle of Christmas <laughs> spirit there for a little while. <laughs> for a little bit, yeah. So what, what did you get for Christmas? Did you get anything Star Warsy? Actually, my roommate picked up two Star Wars things for me just because. We have an agreement that if she sees anything good and cheap that's Star Wars and, you know, she knows what some, what something's like crappy stuff. But she was at Joanne Fabrics and just found, was in where, you know, they have the ends of the bolts of fabrics. You know, you can't make anything out of it. It's about a three and a half, four feet long strip and maybe about 10 inches wide, you know, so it's just a big, long strip of Star Wars material and it's black and white. And it's uh, basically just R two three PO and Darth Vader, or no? There's 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 a. Uh, I'm gonna assume that's Luke in a in his rebel helmet and his you know, X wing. Is, is it Marvel Star Wars stuff? Well, it's that kind of art style, you know, where it's um not it's it's sort of like blockly painted. It could definitely be from Marvel artwork. You know what I mean? Right. There's a couple tie fi- shots of tie fighters and it's it's all sectioned off into oh no, the more I look at it, there's the emperor's eyes and nose too. <laughs> so, I don't know. You know, it it would it, this is like something I could I don't know what I'll do with it. I'll just sort of fold it up and keep it somewhere and maybe like if I have a garage sale, I can decorate one edge of my table with this or something. Put all the star not that I'd be selling any Star Wars stuff cuz nobody's prying that from my hands. <laughs> but that that was it and I got a pair of uh Star Wars drawers <laughs> boxer shorts Under and, drawers. A dec- and a decorative Star Wars tin with the classic artwork you know from the first movie which I'll be wearing so now I have one more every you know I need to get some Star Wars socks I was <laughs> I need to be <laughs> eBay looking for Star Wars socks I'm sure there are some there are they're too expensive though <laughs> They're ridiculously expensive. But, you know, I really want to, like, at some point be able to always have one piece of Star Wars clothing on me, you know? Right. Some sort, whether it's from... Socks and underwear are always good to have because it's just, like, default if you have to go somewhere where you don't want to be... You want to keep the Star Wars on the down low. <laughs> I don't know where that would be. Maybe a wedding or something, you know. Then I could go to a wedding and still be <laughs> flying my colors, <laughs> even though the drawers are black and white. And uh, I've never seen the drawers before, but I've seen the. If you've been in Walmart or like um, Target, 
There's I've I've seen like pajama bottoms. Right. Yeah. Darth Vader's head on them. Yeah. And uh, that's what they are basically. It's the same material. They're just boxer short versions of it made out of that material instead of the fuzzy PJ material. I was really hoping that there would be a new Marvel Star Wars calendar this year. And if there is one, I haven't been able to find it. I, I kind of figured that last year's was a done-in-one type of thing. But, damn, I well, love this thing. It, it happened, just kills me for it to be all over now. I figured if it happened, even if we didn't see it, somebody, you know, like, I, wasn't it Shag spotted it the first year? Or, or maybe it was um, Andy Leyland. Somebody. Yeah, I can't remember. Somebody spotted it, and then a couple other people saw. It. Did you right. ever? Get, did you get a copy of it? Oh, Luke sent me one. Yeah, oh, Luke yeah. sent you one. Yeah. Okay, the one I've got came from Luke. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of hoping that uh, <laughs> this is going to seem so bad for me to just say this outright, but I've really been hoping that somebody was going to send me that poster that um, that, <laughs> that Andy that up. Andy saw. <laughs> but see, I, I I hate to say that because then Andy will end up sending me some, you know, and I know it's got to cost him Andy whatever you do, don't send it fortune to, him. to send me right. stuff. And he sent me I don't know how many things now that he sent me, and I I don't think I've sent him anything. I'm a horrible horrible person and a lousy friend and I just feel bad so I don't want him to do it but I, I keep hoping that uh, that it'll pop up somewhere over here in the states and so I, somebody I, else get this for Scott Gard don't <laughs> exactly. force Andy Leyland to get it poor guy <laughs> Doesn't that sound meanwhile funny? his kids are like daddy I'm hungry <laughs> <laughs> oh that's terrible this now, poster is so dry <laughs> <laughs> now I didn't, I didn't get anything specifically Star Wars for for Christmas this year, but somebody and see I need to start taking more notes because I I always feel bad when I can't remember who I should credit with these great ideas, but right. you'll remember not long ago that we read an email from from a listener and they suggested a, a, that we do I don't know if they wanted it to be a show or a segment or or whatever but something called before star wars it was like a segment that they wanted us to do about like all these classic sci-fi movies like but before star wars came along the sci-fi dinosaurs that ruled the earth before yeah, it, star wars came in that's a great way to put it before the giant meteor star wars came in <laughs> clean I, started the earth think, over again <laughs> i think we we kind of gave that discussion a little bit of short shrift only because one of the things that was tossed out there was Logan's run. And then that kind of caused us to tangent and go, well, gee, we've done that. And then we talked about all the stuff we had done. And I didn't feel like we really praised the idea enough because I think that's a fantastic idea. Yes. And so I kind of want to use that banner before Star Wars for occasional specials that we'll do that are kind of tangentially star wars but before star wars and the big one that's been on our plate for quite a while and we are going to do it this year we are going to do it in time for the next installment is planet of the apes because guess what i got for christmas oh what Not only did i get 
Rise of the Planet of the Apes on Blu-ray that has a shit ton of special features on it that are really, really, really good. Especially the one with uh, Andy... Is it Andy? Is that his name? Circus? Circus, yeah. Yeah, the guy that played uh, uh, Caesar in the film. Um, Not only did I get that, but I got the Planet of the Apes... I guess it would be a quintology. It's five movies. Quintology, is that an actual word? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if it's an actual word, but yeah. <laughs> I'm going to coin it if it's not. But it's uh, it's all five of the original Apes movies on Blu-ray, and again, a shit ton of special features, commentaries, all kinds of great stuff. I've been watching my way through them. They're awesome. the 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 transfer is gorgeous. I mean, they're really really nice. Twenty bucks. Wow. 20 bucks at Best Buy. And I don't even think it was a sale price. I think that's a regular price. People, get out there and get this thing because this year, coming on Two True Freaks, we're going to have a before Star Wars special. We're going to do it a month. And we're going to do plenty It'll of. It'll be a before Star Wars month, yes. Month. Yeah. And, and we're going to cover um, everything apes. I mean, we're going to talk about the films. We're going to do commentaries. We're going to do specials about just everything apes related. Um, And then we're also going to cross over for that month with Back to the Bins. And I know Paul and uh, Bill have both been, uh, we've been talking about this, and they're both really excited about the idea as well. We're going to cover all of the different incarnations of apes in comic books. And there's a lot more than you may be thinking, because there was the Marvel mag, there were different Marvel uh, you know, comics. There's um, Boom Studios recently had one. There was Adventure Comics, and then there was one or two in the interim that uh, companies I can't even remember what their names were. Yeah. A lot of really, really great stuff there. So you know, we're going to make a, a big deal out of this as it comes along. So be looking forward to that in the new year. I just realized as we're recording this right now, we're right about at the two-year mark for when. The new Star Wars movie comes out too. Mm-hmm. December of 2015. So, mm-hmm. it's getting close. We're yeah. old, so two years is just like ah, <laughs> no time at all. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Did you have anything else on the preamble segment before we jump into emails? Yes, I did. Oh, go ahead. I just completed my Star Wars Marvel collection. Sweet. I got a copy of Marvel of Star Wars 106 for a dollar ninety nine. Wow! And like another like two dollars shipping. Was that off eBay? That was off eBay. Wow! That is it was so- buy it now. Somebody doing an estate sale put it up. Buy it now, and I just caught it just as it got put up. Then the other one that I just so then I was like, oh, this guy doesn't know what comics are worth. So I got like a couple other. I got a Mad magazine, an old Mad Super Special, that has a very politically incorrect flag in it. But that's for another time and another <laughs> place. But uh, the the other thing I picked up was Marvel Age magazine. Oh, Com- yeah. It's comic size number ten, only twenty five cents, January of nineteen eighty four. So it's it's roughly. Yeah, it's more in the time period of when of the Indiana Jones comics that we're <laughs> doing right now. But uh, basically, it has a cover of Luke Skywalker with his lightsaber, and basically the whole crew 
of you know the base the 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 major characters of Star Wars and then sort of the ancillary characters that were designed by Marvel right mixed in with them by Ron Friends and I as I was saying I don't like the art I think all the proportions are kind of screwy Chewie's got this weird balloon head <laughs> R2 and 3PO 3PO's got like googly eyes and like smiley face going on and like how rude we, said, we were talking about before the show Cheetos like howling at the moon <laughs> it's just we- it's weird it and when I saw weird. it in the eBay ad it looked like Walt Simonson art and I was like oh that would be cool but basically the the story that's in it not story but it's a interview with Louise Jones and uh, Mary Jo Duffy by Patrick O'Neill it's just basically what are you going to do now that the movies, you know, Return of the Jedi's over, right? And uh, it's kind of a puff piece, you know. They're they're being very. There's no hint of any of the trouble that they had. This might have probably been before, <laughs> because they're saying, "Oh well, you know, we we're looking forward to doing this and this and this." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, think again. You're not going to be. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be allowed to do that." But um. The the interesting thing in here is they were talking about things that had gotten nixed. And uh, they were talking about... I think, I'm sure we talked about this in Star Wars Monthly Mondays past of uh, Dave McElhinney wanted to do... I think we talked about it with Dave McElhinney. Right. Um, they, they were going to do a story about building a second Death Star and Lucasfilm said, Nah, right. no, you can't do that. And that but that was pre-Jedi. Mm-hmm. So that was basically they were talking about stuff that they did that they wrote that was just too close to what was coming down the hopper. But um, um, then they have um, Mary Jo Duffy says, yeah, but this time George Lucas said he's taken at least a two year hiatus before he even begins production on the next Star Wars films, <laughs> which means you've got five years or more without having to worry about stepping on Lucas's toes. I don't remember in that time period ever hearing anything. I wasn't pretty much word on the street from Lucas at that time that that was it. That's how I remember it. That's how I recall it. This is the first I've ever seen where they were like, ah, he's going to take a couple years off before doing the next ones. But then again, they were maybe a little more on the inside. But I'd never heard that before. That that was, I thought, the most interesting thing in the whole um, whole interview, basically. The way I remember that whole thing was that essentially after Jedi, it was, I'm pretty much done. But if I ever do any more, it will be just, you know, the prequels, the setup story. Well, that's but what she was- said, and she said the next ones are going to be the the setup story. Right. That, that that's how I remember it, but I don't remember there being any timeline promised. I remember it being more of if I ever do it, you know, that's what it'll be, as opposed to oh yeah, you know, definitely within a certain amount of time or something like that. Because you know, as we discussed, I think last Star Wars Monthly Monday, I, I know twice in my life I'd come to terms with well, that's all we're ever going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that it was after Return of the Jedi. I didn't think there were going to be any more movies, and after uh, Revenge of the Sith, I didn't think we were going to get any more movies. So that's how I remember it. 
but I, I do definitely know that, uh, that at some point or other, he said, uh, that there would, you know, that the original plan of nine movies, you know, being, you know, three trilogies that, that, that went out the window that he was going to, you know, he did the original trilogy and eventually he would do a, a prequel trilogy if he ever did get around to it. But the idea of doing, you know, the, uh, the, the sequel trilogy, if you want to call it that, that was kind of scrapped. So that's why it's weird that we're actually, we are going full circle. We are getting that. They're planning on doing like Star Wars movies every year. Right. I'm wondering after 7, 8, and 9 though, whether they're going to do 10, 11, 12, or they're just going to do ancillary stories after that or start something else. Or I don't It's know. academic, but I wonder. Well, I don't know. Is it academic, though? Because I, I suspect, and, and I think there was confirmation of this recently, that the model that they kind of want to use for these things is essentially the model that they're using for the Marvel films, which is, you know, to have certain characters have their own individual movies that, that mm-hmm. keep the universe as a whole, keep it alive, keep people interested, and keep, you know, churning out money makers hopefully right and then every so often you have the big tent pole yeah exactly and that's how they've been doing it or you know how it looks like it's going to be done with the marvel movies you know you had all the lead-up movies then you had the avengers now you're going to have a whole another string of lead-up movies and then avengers 2 i think that's a brilliant way to go i think with with this how they should do it at first is i think Concentrate on the sequel trilogy. Do seven, eight, and nine, and then go into that. Um, you know, whatever you want to call that. You know, the tent pole thing that you use. I think that's a, a brilliant analogy. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. I get the feeling though that they're going to try to do both at the same time, and I'm not sure how that's going to work. I'd, I'd well, much because rather. I don't see think the- there's going to be a year in between seven, eight, and nine. There's going to be like three, two or three. You know, it takes more than a year to make a Star Wars film, right? So they're probably going to want to keep, you know, the ancillary movies in, you know, two of them in between, right? Well, I, I you know, plus I had the feeling that with the movies that they were going to do that it's possible that those movies that they could do those side project movies that were discussed and not necessarily have them. I don't want to say interfere, but not necessarily have them connect to the sequel trilogy. If you know what I mean? Right. Because I I know that they discussed, you know, young Han Solo and Yoda who, you know, obviously Yoda's pardon me, Yoda's dead. So it would have to be, you know, a flashback movie type of thing. And Boba Fett, and Boba Fett, you know, now is pushing what, like seventy, eighty years old. So, again, probably you know a, a, a movie set, you know, in his right. young life type of thing. So, I, I guess they could do it that way, but I just don't want it to affect the overall quality of episodes seven, eight, and nine if it means distraction. You know, that somehow. You know, people are being pulled in too many different, you know, creative people are being pulled in too many directions. Right. You know, I want them to concentrate. Let's let's make this, you know, third trilogy everything that we want as opposed to that's the main project, but I need some of you guys to work on this thing. No, I, you know, if, if that means distraction and, and not using all of your best people on the one thing, then I, I'd rather not. 
Because well, I, I have that, no problem going back to the original formula that we've always had with Star Wars with one every three years. I, I'm fine with that because mm-hmm. I think that ensures quality. That you're taking your time, you're giving, you know, you're using all the time that you need. Plus, it builds anticipation. It, it builds everything. Well, well, I'm hoping the ancillary stuff are their own productions. You know, they get a director who, you know, they they, they get, you know, say Joe Johnson to do Boba Fett, mm-hmm. and then he puts together his usual crew, right? And, you know, his favorite cameraman from Captain America or whatever. And does it just like he was doing, a, you know, any other, you know, a Joe Johnson movie. So hopefully it wouldn't be drawing. Oh, the only way I could see it drawing away is maybe if they end up with cast members in common, you know. Right. You know, Anthony Daniels might be getting a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. He may be spending a lot of time in front of a microphone. Well, see, that's one of the cool things that they could do, too, is that by doing these uh, ancillary movies, then you don't necessarily have to have R2 and 3PO in there. Because we were kind of promised right. R2 and 3PO they for, need the, to be for in the, the three ten, trilogies. Yeah, yeah the exactly. They're, they're supposed to be there because they're essentially the storytellers and also the point-of-view characters. But when you're doing, like, young Han Solo or you know young Yoda or whatever... I mean, they're they're not essential right. to those stories, so you don't. They need might be kind of stupid if you shoehorned them in there too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I already feel that way sometimes with the with the prequel trilogy. That mm-hmm. I think that some of the credibility of of those movies was affected by shoehorning because I think R two feels very shoehorned into those films. To be honest with you, but. Anyway, but yeah, I'm growing more, I don't want to say necessarily excited, but I'm growing more interested in uh, in the project as it goes along because we've been hearing some interesting things, but I don't know, remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. We do have a quick email, and this one is from our buddy Brian Hughes, and he writes, Scott and Chris, and then in parentheses he writes, and Trentus. He says, <clears throat> I've been wondering if you will cover any of the other Star Wars comics other than Marvel. I like this Dark Horse Works like the Tag and Bink series and would like to hear your take on that. I will just mention briefly that uh, I don't know what episode it was, but if you dig through the fairly recent uh, archive of Back to the Bins episodes, we did cover an episode of uh, Tag and Bink on Back to the Bins not long. I mean, it was within this past year, so you don't have to go back very far to find that. Says, moving on, I really enjoyed the Empire Infinities review you fellas did with Mr. Magnus. He says, you almost take over his show. Almost. Did we almost take over the show? Sure, why not? (laughs) There's two of us, one of him. (laughs) We outnumber him. Says, my big complaint on the story was on the divergences you spoke of, where the Star Wars Infinities uh, only had one. Empire had several that did not make sense. It was like the uh, writer took out the asteroid search solely for storytelling ease rather than replaying uh, all of that from Empire up until they go to Dagobah. They really could have used Luke's death to explain this as a massive tremor in the Force that had Vader travel a different path. I had always uh, had this what-if story in my head where Boba Fett was actually a friend of Han Solo, Going all the way back to A New Hope, where in the special edition we see Fett with Jabba, we later find that the Fett 
was always making sure that Solo stayed off Jabba's radar. I always wondered how that would have played out, especially in Empire. That's actually an interesting idea. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Uh, Here are other ideas I had in my head based on things I had assumed before the prequels came out and blew my theories to hell. He says, one, the Clone Wars. I had thought that the Clone Wars were about clones of Jedi's fighting. My evidence was the name Obi-Wan. Uh, as I thought his name was. Now, he, he spells instead of one, he has one. So, like, Obi-Wan, O-N-E, which I think is an interesting idea. Since I had thought it would actually be O-B-1, a clone designation or clone line originator. That's an interesting idea. I like that idea a lot. Well, it's very much, and it would, you know, I mean, I was, I was starting to go... I don't know, this guy's kind of stretching it a little bit. But then I started thinking about it, and it reminds me of uh, THX 1138. Mm-hmm. And the way the people are designated and numbered in there. And especially if you read the novelization, you know, there's people, you know, who are running into the people with the same name, but just different numbers and stuff. And, yeah, yeah, and I always thought that the Clone Wars would be clone Jedis, too, because that's way more exciting than just clone schmo. My idea of what the Clone Wars would be was actually pretty closely realized by, of all people, John Byrne. I don't know if you've ever read this, Chris. Uh, Brian, uh, I will direct you to this also if if you've never read this before. There was a series called World of Krypton. It was a four-issue miniseries that was written by Byrne I don't think he did any of the art on it, but I know that um, Mike Mignola, early in his career, he he did the art on this series. Uh, Pencils, I don't know if he inked it or not, I can't remember, but he did the pencil work for it. And, um, well, like I say, the story was written by Byrne. This is early, post-crisis Superman stuff. So it was kind of a, this is when Byrne was still basically building the world of the post-crisis Superman and still involved with that. And like I say, it was a four-issue mini, and it told the the backstory of the world of Krypton, but John Burns Krypton. And the basic story with that was that at some point in Krypton's path uh, past, they had had the Clone Wars, and the way he depicts that, and the way he tells it, and the origins of that story, and why these wars happened, hits so closely to what I had already set up in my mind as a kid for basically what the Clone Wars were, what they were about, why they were, and and how they were fought. I it's As much as I really enjoy the prequels, and I, I don't want to get into a prequel hating or anything, but I was disappointed by how Lucas eventually revealed the Star Wars Clone Wars to be because it just wasn't the the concept the way I had envisioned it. So I will definitely point you out to that. I, I, I think it's a really good story. I, I loved his idea of Clone War because it was legitimately, it was about cloned people mm-hmm. and you know the, the moral implications of mm-hmm. cloning people just basically to harvest their parts, which I thought that was kind of the, the point of the thing. Well, it's sort, of like, it's sort of like our Civil War or something. It's something over an idea. Right. You know? It's, right. it, instead of being like a war, ma- literally a war made up of clones. Right. 
because that's the difference with I think with the Clone Wars as they eventually came to be revealed in the prequels is that I, I don't see the moral dilemma being discussed. These clone war these clones are created to be cannon fodder, and nobody seems to have a problem with that. I think it would have been a much better story if these clones were created to be cannon fodder, and somebody somewhere said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Yeah, this, I, well, this not is a, a pretty single slip. Jedi did that. Yeah, yeah nobody a- did, and that seems wrong to me, especially Yoda, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is exactly what John Burns' Clone Wars in World of Krypton. That's exactly what it was about. Was about somebody finally standing up and saying, you know, this is kind of morally weird, right? You know, that we're breeding these people just so that we can harvest their body parts. Does, does anybody else have a problem with this? That's what that was about, which, again, was what, as a, as a child, that's what I thought the Clone Wars were probably going to end up being about. So, anyway... Uh, let's see here. Number two, Anakin. I was Sky- going to say we probably put more thought about what the Clone Wars were going to be about than George <laughs> Lucas did until he had to sit down and write them. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> he says number two, Anakin Skywalker, space uh, freighter navigator. He says I had assumed based on this comment that at one time Anakin uh, was on the Millennium Falcon with a young Chewbacca. My evidence of this was Vader preventing Boba Fett from shooting Chewbacca in the carbon chamber. Hmm. That's a very interesting idea. I I don't know. That's uh, that's a lot of inference there, but uh, it's, it's an interesting idea. It says, have you seen the Star Wars fan film Troops, the cops spoof? Oh, yeah. I always liked that and how it... Re- uh, represented Owen and Baru. Yeah, I, I have seen that. I thought it was actually I, very funny. I think that's the finest of all, not just all Star Wars fan films, I think that's like the premier fan film ever made. Oh, it's I, just I think seamless. You're one. I think you're missing one. Hardware Wars. A spectacle light years ahead of its time. Starring Fluke Starbucker. Intergalactic Boy Wonder. Augie Ben Doggy, venerable member of the Red Eye Knights. Princess Android, interstellar damsel in distress. Ham Salad, ace mercenary pilot and intergalactic wise guy. Darth Nader, villain. See incredible celestial battles ablaze with death-dealing weaponry. Enjoy mirth-filled moments with the amusing antics of Space Drones 4Q2 and Artie Deco. Hardware Wars. Hardware Wars, yeah. 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 But if uh, you're talking, if you're talking like, I mean, quality wise, YouTube's. This was pre YouTube too. Yeah, I remember right. having to download it piece by piece, you yeah. know, on like Kazaa or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, the actors and actresses that they got to do, you know, it was just, it was seamless, and the way they tied it in with Star Wars, it was, it was just a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Hmm. It's one of the. I'll be honest with you. It's one of the few I've watched, because while there are probably a billion and a half Star Wars fan films, 
I've only ever sampled a, a tiny little handful of them because I'll be completely blunt and honest about this. I think they Most suck. of them suck? Yeah. Yes. I mean, even the ones... They, they suck a certain like, appendage on donkeys, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, they do. Because I've seen some that had pretty ins- impressive special effects, but they all seem to have exactly the same story, and I'm I'm bored by them. And most of them look like... They're mostly usually an excuse to have people show off their martial arts skills and their lightsaber fights. Yep. Have you ever seen some of those early um, CD-ROM video games, the cutscenes, you know, that were actually like live action? Yes. That's what they most of them remind me of. Yes. Not as good though. (laughs) (laughs) You see, the thing about it is, well, the two the two most successful ones that we mentioned are Hardware Wars and and Troops, Mm -hmm. and they're both comedies. Right. So it's it's a lot easier and like and troops had the advantage of they had they were sort of there and they had the costumes and stuff and hardware wars played on its cheapness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had you had something there and it was and it was gag after gag when you're trying to do it straight up and serious. That's when it gets um oh, you know what else was a good fan film that 3D animation that that school down in Florida did. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and uh, there's that one short animated one where it's the... I don't even think there was really a story to it necessarily, but it was that Star Destroyer like getting ready for battle. And yes. it looked like an old school... Anime. Yeah, like an anime. That was pretty spectacular. That was like I would watch footage it and, that some, yeah. some student probably spent you know, yeah. sleepless nights drawing. That was insanely detailed. I would watch a feature of that, though. because Oh, again, yeah, but it, that's it, like an Akira-level budget for that, you oh, know. Yeah. I mean, that probably took... Those seconds of animation probably took him months of at the drawing table. But I'd, I'd much rather watch something like that than, uh, like, Clone Wars or Rebels, because it, it just... I, I liked the animation style so much, and it felt... That really felt like classic Star Wars, yeah. especially like classic Star Wars comics to me. Well, when you saw the Star Destroyer in full detail, you know, mm-hmm. drawn in that style. But it was funny because the X-Wing fighters and, and TIE fighters were all, you know, that sort of streak. You'd see the pilots inside like, whoa, go team, you know, and like right. that streaky anime style. But yeah, that would be really, really neat. If they did Star Wars animation style, I would want to see it in that anime style. I would want to see it in the higher budget Akira level. You know. Um, well, what's funny is that even though that was a- an anime style, it also very it was a realistic re- style. Well, it very strongly reminded me of Simonson era. Yeah, Star Wars, and that's one of the reasons I really liked it because well, there's an element of hyperrealism to it at mm-hmm. the same time with being stylized. When that first started, when I when I started watching it for the very first time, my first thought was, "Oh my God, this is Simonson Star Wars!" And then I realized, you know, when you see the characters, they they do have that that Japanimation look to them, but the vehicles and the starships. I thought looked much closer Art. to Simonson's uh, depictions in the comics. Yeah, someday I'm gonna. I've been slowly when I see them saving them onto a favorites on my YouTube, and someday I'll do a show on fan films. I'll 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 take the bullet because <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. 
We should do a, uh, a media masochist on, uh, on Star yes, Wars fan plenty. films. <laughs> plenty. I was just explaining to people at work about fan fiction and the horrible Star Wars fan fiction I had to do for the media masochist once. <laughs> there was a lot of media masochist type style. There was a lot of talk, as, as there is every year, of the Star Wars holiday special on the Facebook page. And the... The maligners speaking up, which I can't blame them, but for me, that cartoon redeems it all. That's the like granddaddy of Star Wars fan films, except it's like official mm-hmm. Star Wars fan film. It was like you had to w- waiting through that that show, but then seeing that was just like electrifying, mm-hmm. and then it was back to <laughs> Jefferson Starship. <laughs> Harvey Corman. Well, Brian Wright uh, wraps up here by just saying, anyway, keep recording and I will keep listening. And again, that was from Brian Hughes. Thank you very much, Brian. I did appreciate it. Well, uh, why don't we take a little break and then we will come back and we will get into the next chapter of the uh, Star Wars Omnibus Wild Space Volume. Yes. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday 59er. And before Scott Gardner gets to the synapses of our latest Star Wars comic book, I just want to shout out to we've been having so many people have been joining the, the Facebook page, which you can do if you go to Facebook and search for Two True Freaks. You can come and join the page too. We just added four people uh, Raynard D. Fox, Bob Bloxham, James Hickson, and Dedrick Jenkins have all joined the Facebook page, and we'll be seeing all the hilarious and obnoxious things that get posted there. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to do that real quick. And now on to comic-y books with Scott Gardner. (laughs) Sweet. 
This time around, we have a short and sweet little tale that was originally told over the course of three installments in Star Wars Weekly. They were issues uh, 104 through 106. Now, this story has come to be known collectively as the Weapons Master, and that's based on how it was reprinted in the 1981 edition of Marvel Comics' illustrated version of Star Wars paperback comic. Now, this is there were a couple of different ones with that exact name. This is the one that had the painted cover of Han shooting Chewie in the back, so then that you know which one is which. Incidentally, that printing of the story was fully colored, whereas the original was, of course, in you know glorious black and white because that's just how they were done. That's how it's presented in Star Wars Omnibus Wild Space Volume 1. That's where we're covering this story from, so when we make references to specific pages or page numbers, that's where the pages match up with. And also, you can go through our Amazon link at from 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the Amazon link, take you directly to Amazon, and that's where you can purchase said uh, omnibus wild space volume one and follow along with the two true freaks as we cover all this stuff so star wars weekly number 104 was published february 20th 1980 the cover is by carmine infantino the inker is not identified on these uh the speculation is that it's wyacek I don't know if I agree with that. It kind of looks like why I check on this one. I don't know about the subsequent two uh, two issues. Anyway. Well, it says art by Steve Mitchell, too. That's on the interior. Yeah, the interior oh, artist. Oh, you, oh, you're talking about the cover. Okay. Yeah, uh, the covers, I'm not exactly sure. Mitchell may be the one that did 105. Because, see, 104 looks like it could be why I check to me. 105 and 106 are the ones where I'm not able to pinpoint the inker on those. That may be Mitchell, because I'm really not familiar with with him or his work. Incidentally, the cover to 104 serves as the cover art to this omnibus, the Wild Space Omnibus, which I thought was really cool. That cover depicts Luke and Leia, and they're still attired as they were in uh, in the first film. And they're engaged in a fearsome firefight with a squad of Imperial Stormtroopers. And you gotta love those Carmen Infantino laser pistols that the Stormtroopers are holding. I really like that stuff. This and the uh, two subsequent chapters were written, of course, by Archie Goodwin. Penciled again by uh, Carmen Infantino. And inked by Steve Mitchell, who, as I said, I, I'm not familiar with this guy at all. Howard Bender is credited as the tonist. And it was lettered, uh, lettered, lettered, lettered by Joe Riz Riz Rosin. <laughs> I'm not drinking tonight either. That's the worst part of this. Yeah. So, <laughs> chapter one, the weapons master hits the ground running or blasting, if you prefer, as Luke, Leia, and the two droids flee for their lives from a squad of stormtroopers after a mission gone wrong. During the firefight, R2-D2 is hit, but the troopers apparently have their blasters set to tilt, I guess, as the little robot is merely knocked over as a result (laughs) of being shot. Leia lays down cover fire for Luke, and after rescuing R2, the uh, foursome retreat to their spaceship and blast off out of there. 
Luke is grateful for Leia's assistance, and he and 3PO inquire as to where precisely a princess from a planet without weapons ever gained such skills with a blaster. And so begins the flashback to uh, wiggly lines <laughs> to a time during young Leia's first term as an Imperial Senator. After surviving a failed assassination attempt, Princess Leia is taken in and instructed in the use of firearms and presumably some hand-to-hand combat, I guess, by a guy named Giles Duran or Duran or Duran Duran or whatever the weapons master. Durain served with Bail Organa, Leia's adopted father, during the Clone Wars and has been hired by the Viceroy to give Leia some much-needed self-defense training. Elsewhere, Imperial General Emir and his associate, Torgas, of the Assassin's Guild are not pleased to learn of the weapons master's involvement in their plans to bump the princess off. Later, aboard Durain's orbiting vessel, Leia, who has quickly mastered the large shipboard or larger shipboard weapons, is having reservations about the more personal weapons, such as blasters. Giles tells her that she better get over it quick, or her hesitation may prove to be a fatal flaw. <gasps> Chapter 2 from Star Wars Weekly number 105 also features a cover by Inventino, and this one depicts Leia firing her blaster while Giles and his little toady assistant, Gimlet, are at her side and their ship is orbiting overhead. It's actually a really nice cover. I like this one a lot. He's the happiest knife thrower in the world. <laughs> Uh, now, the uh, next week, remember, these were weekly issues. The next week teaser from the last issue, 104, calls this chapter The Assassin's Strike. The cover, and Wikipedia, incidentally, call it Princess Leia Fights for Her Life. But the first page of the story itself calls it Day of the Assassins. So you take your pick of whatever the hell title you want for this story. But after a brief summary of the story so far, Leia and Giles are attacked by three would-be assassins who seem to have snuck aboard before liftoff. Two of them are quickly dispatched by Giles and Gimlet, again, Durain's uh, little alien buddy. The third is left to Leia. She hesitates, but after some goading by Durain, she takes the guy out. Then the princess is sickened by what she's done. She's just killed a man. Or so she thinks. Turns out, she was only wielding a practice blaster, and it was incapable of doing any more than just stunning her target. And when the assassin uh, recovers enough to try again, he's then quickly taken out by Giles. Durain then tells Leia that he knew all along that they had stowaways, but allowed them to believe that they had gone unnoticed in order to find out, for one, exactly what they were up to, and also, if they proved hostile, he figured that it would give Leia some much-needed live target practice. And she's appalled by this idea, but uh, after a little sob story about Giles' post-Clone Wars life and how hard it was, she kind of backs off of him a little bit. Meanwhile, down on the planet, Torgus decides to take a personal hand in the death of Princess Leia. Chapter 3 Another cover by Infantino, this time showing Leia being menaced by a vampiric-looking Torgus, and another person who I can't really tell you who it is because I don't want to spoil it for you yet, anyway. 
And uh, Gimlet lies either dead or stunned in the foreground, or maybe sound asleep. <laughs> and this story is entitled, My Enemies Surround Me. You gotta love these titles. It begins with yet another recap of events. Then, having uh, been signed off on her training by Doraine, Leia resumes her diplomatic mission to the planet below. There she is uh, interrupted to be notified of a visitor by this uh, really cool-looking protocol droid. But on her way to meet with uh, whomever it is that's come to visit her, she's set upon by Torgus. The assassin slashes at Leia, but her mysterious visitor arrives to save her. It's Gimlet, who's immediately shot and killed. Torgus really oh. is going to kill Leia now, except he's shot in the back. It's Giles Durain to the rescue. Except uh, he's come to kill Leia. See, by completing her training, he's paid off his debt to her father. Now, being that he's a mercenary and all, he is free to accept new contracts. So he took the one offered by General What's-His-Face to assassinate Princess Leia. So now it's duel time. High noon and a standoff between the master and the pupil. So he fires, and she dodges. She fires, and he falls. So I thought this guy was the weapon. She shed some oily C-3PO tears. Yeah, exactly. Yep. She holds no grudges, and she weeps for the death of her mentor. Back in the present... 3PO comments on R2's assessment of the whole situation that this was a very sad story. But they're all grateful nonetheless that the princess's experience in the past helped provide their happy ending in the present. Ooh, that Whoa, happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, the Star Warriors go on a secret mission to the world of fire. So what did you think of the weapons master? It's funny because I, for some reason, since somebody was like, I wanted to, on the Facebook page, was like, I was wondering what you guys were thinking of World of Fire. I read through this and World of Fire. I thought the weapons master was a good little sob story. It was a little cheesy, though, because, you know, they sort of foreshadowed it where she said something like, oh, my God, you are the most that's the most cynical thing I've ever heard. So it's like, OK, this guy's cynical, but that's pretty cynical. And I mean, it's a flashback, so there's really no mystery as whether Leia's going to come out alive. Right. But I really don't think she would take out this guy like who's just been, you know, she has, she still has a, he's I guess he's technically he's really your first kill. Mm-hmm. But this gives Carmine Infantino a chance to draw cheese, cakey <laughs> Princess Leia's. And it's funny because there's a lot of shots. Look at page 125 is the there's several shots like this one on the first um you know, right up at the top of the page. There's Princess Leia in her full Carmine Infantino glory with her little tiny waist and big boobs. But the face is just sort of like, yeah, 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 she has a face. <laughs> you know, it's almost sketched on there, you know? Right. It's funny, and there's a few of them like that, and they're all like sort of cheesecakey. He was really having fun drawing her physique in mm-hmm. these and the covers of in, Inside and Outside. Oh, yeah. 
what's funny is that you can kind of see the uh, you know the the Infantino Leia that that you and I really came to love, but it's a little off, and I can yes. only assume that that's Mitchell's inks. Mm-hmm. I I don't know that the two mesh real well with each other because Leia has alternately she has either like bitch face or like china doll face one of the two in almost every panel she i i didn't think she was particularly attractive in this one i mean you know from the from the neck up you know what i mean (laughs) right right that's what i'm saying it looked like it looked like there was just way more time spent rendering her body sometimes on page 123 the where she's like I did it. That looks like a copy out of uh, a picture out of like Harvey Kurtzman, Little Annie Fanny, or right, something. Right? Yeah. You know, it's almost yeah. it's almost caricatured. Well, look at her on page that last panel on page one twenty one. She looks like uh, who? Who was Mommy Dearest? The one you know, Joan Crawford. Yes. Yeah, she doesn't she. Why is there a wire hanger in the? <laughs> yes, with That's... that like too many. She has a too many faces facelifts look she's got joan rivers face (laughs) there (laughs) yes very much it's like someone took her buns and turned them two times too tight but if you uh i mean if you were to jump ahead to the to the next story which uh we will be covering next time around not not this uh not this episode but if you look at leia in that I mean, there you go. There's the classic who's sexy the, who's the anchor there? So, Gene Day, Gene though. Gene Day, there you go, exactly. So, there you go. Yeah, and in the next story, we're going to get a lot of cheesecake because there's even another girl put in there. Mm-hmm. So Carmine Infantino is in hog heaven, but we'll get to that <laughs> next month. Yep. Um, I did have some uh, some notes on this one. Steve Mitchell, I, I had to look him up because I just didn't recognize the name. And uh, the the interesting thing I found out about him, he actually, many years later, of course, co-wrote an episode of Star Wars The Clone Wars. I thought that was huh. really kind of cool that, uh, you know, he, he's maintained a Star Wars connection after all this time. But that's really the only thing I, I turned up on him. Um, I still am not really familiar with him or his work. I, I can't recall if I've seen his work you know, other places in comics or not. I was impressed by this story just jumps right into the action to a point where I almost thought maybe I was coming into a a story already in progress. If you know what I mean? Like, like maybe I'd missed a chapter or missed it. They're just, they're just such short chapters. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is very much, this is, it's funny because this is made by, you know, the American star Wars team. But it's definitely made for a British audience mm-hmm. because if you read like your Judge Dreads, anything, all that stuff that came out and it came out as a weekly. So they only had a few pages and it was just, yeah, you, you had no time to mess around. You know, you had to tell your story really quickly and condensed. Definitely. Yeah. I like uh, in the in the first chapter there the, the weapon that Luke's that Luke has. It looks like a. It's like a, uh, what do you call it? A silence like a silencer. Yeah. 
pistol or something. It's really, it's kind of weird looking, but it's There's something like the diffuse heat on the front of it. Some sort of <laughs> baffle on the front of it. Right. Like but it a- looks like the, it looks like it would really like hurt your wrist to use that blaster. Cause it's re- <laughs> really front hat. You know, you got like five pounds of blaster that you're supporting with your wrist. <laughs> and, Look at that stormtrooper that's blasting R2, man. That guy's got some rickety leg. He's like the t- world's tallest, gangliest stormtroopers. It looks like they just sort of like had to make some sort of half-assed fake legs for him. What what page is that? Right on 113. 113. I, I wonder if he's the one that I notice. I'm trying to flip there as fast as I can. He's, he's Daddy Longlegs stormtrooper. There's one of them I noticed. Classic Oh, yeah, yeah. But look on the next page, third panel, the one that's being shot. Now, uh-huh. that that one, the leg that's closest to us, is way longer than the than the other leg. Yeah, because where his knee is is where his ankle is on the other leg. Maybe this, the, maybe wherever they are, they're not where the, you know, maybe they're, this is the land of misfit stormtroopers. <laughs> <laughs> well, then also R2. Who and... wants a stormtrooper with a spindly leg? <laughs> <laughs> Look at R2 in that top panel. Now, R2's laying on his side. Turn the book. Oh, yeah. And R2 has a leg that's longer than the other two. And you don't really notice it until you turn the page. So that's how much it's also really short all of a sudden, too. Yeah. Well, that that was a, a staple of the way yeah. Infantino drew, uh, drew R2. He always drew him way too close to the ground. And it also looks like Luke's kind of taking cover behind R2. Right. <laughs> Well, R2 in that uh, next-to-last panel lot right there on 114 is he's, you know, beating a retreat with the rest of them, but he doesn't have the third leg coming. He's in the that position where he should be, you know, the, the tripod position, but there's not the third leg, so that's kind of weird. Maybe he's too. just waggling back and forth <laughs> like a donkey bird. He's not breakdancing or whatever like in that, that one story. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I like the ship they've got. Yeah, I think the ship is really cool looking. I think that might be something that uh, that Infantino borrowed from one of the sketchbooks because I think there was a. Mm. It's like a proto um, blockade runner or something. I'm not sure it's that like this blockade is a- runner with elements of the Falcon in it. Yeah, you know? it's got the Falcon sort of you know front turrety. Right. Yeah, because there are that top panel on 114 when it. You can barely see the ship behind them. I thought that was the cockpit yeah. of Falcon until they actually got into the ship. It's neat because this is yet another story where it's them off on a, on a separate adventure and Han Solo's you know, not to be seen or, or even mentioned in this story. I like that you because know, last time around we had Han and Chewie off on their own adventure with no mention of, of Luke or Leia or any of them. So it's interesting that... You know, they're kind of having their, their separate adventures during this time. But yeah, I like both, because I liked Giles' ship as well. I thought Giles' ship was actually really cool looking, because it's, uh, it's a different um, a different design than we've seen so far in these stories, because it, it looks... 
It's got a little 2001 Space Odyssey, Yeah, to it. that's what I was thinking. It, it looks like a cross between... What's the name of the ship in that? Dis- Discovery? Was that the name of it? Of the ship in 2001? 2001? Oh, jeez. Odyssey? Was it the Odyssey? It might Discovery? Have... Something like that. Whatever the ship was in 2001, it's like a... It's like a cross between that and kind of like the the Cygnus from uh, from the black mm-hmm. hole a little bit mm-hmm. in the back portion of it. It's actually really neat. I like that design. Yes, and it's prominently displayed on the cover of was it the second part? Yeah, the yeah, chapter two. Yeah, the cover image. Yeah, I like that too. It's a little more bug like. In there, see, I'm, I'm having. I wish I could tell who the inker was on this because I'm just not sure if that's if I agree that that's why a check or not. But I'm I'm just not positive. But on 122, there's a shot. Is it page 122? One, oh, no, it's page 123. I'm sorry, page 123. That third panel where Leia shoots that guy. That's a flash pose. That is a classic. Skidding to a halt. Yes, that skidding to a halt with the one leg up. That's a classic Infantino flash because he worked on flash for a lot. And that was like when the flash would be like screeching to a halt from a long run or something. That's what it looks like. Plus, the guy has, at least in that one panel, that guy has like dead man's face. Because a lot of people forget that uh, Infantino is the co-creator of Dead Man. It's weird, too, because now that I notice it, it's like he has, like, Robin booties, Batman's, like, trunks and utility belt, and then he has, yeah. like, Dead Man's face. It's really weird, especially in black and white. He looks really bizarre. <laughs> I like the art in black and white. Yeah, I do. A lot. Too. I do, especially the uh, the stuff that's inked by day. Mm. That, that stuff's gorgeous. We'll get that next time around. That big panel, the last panel, I'm 124, but the big panel, the guy being blown up, that almost that exact same pose and, and like explosion effect, I know I've seen that before by Infantino, maybe more than one time, because the, the one that reminds me of is from, remember in the wheel storyline, Either Han shoots somebody or it's when Han gets shot by Chewie. I forget. But somebody in that storyline, while they're floating in space and having that yes, gets shot just like that. It's You know what it is? It's I don't even I, – I think it might be in the um, Crimson Jack. Oh, that's right. Yeah. When I they're having right. the, the yeah. gunfight in space. I think yeah. that's that's where it happens. That you, Yeah. Now that you say that, that rings a bell. Yeah. It might be when Han shoots Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And it also looks like he just got punched in the face by a superhero, too. Right. It looks like a superhero battle with right. the guy who just got delivered the blow. Yeah, very much so. Page 126, that second panel. What the hell are we seeing here? I couldn't make sense of this. It looks like we're looking at them through a popped balloon or something. What the hell is that thing? Yeah, that's Before a good ground. question. It's really bizarre because they're in the ship. So if that was a, a window or something that had been shot, I mean, they'd be dead, right? Yes. So I literally cannot tell what the hell that is supposed to be in the foreground. Is it a, like their reflection in a somebody's broken helmet or something? Of one <laughs> of the guys that killed or something? I can't. No, none of them had helmets on. 
I, yeah, I can't. I really no can't tell what that is. It's it's a very bizarre art choice there. I, I like. I just can't tell what it's supposed to be. Yeah, because none of these other. I mean, does anybody get shot in the face or in the helmet or something? Because uh-huh. these other guys, they don't even have helmets on, do they? No. Let's see, I'm looking to. No, they all look like the other guy. They all look like Dead Man. So I, <laughs> I'm stumped. I don't know what the hell that's supposed to be. It's really weird. I really like the droid in the third part of the little servant droid that comes. Because Infantino was was really cool about making other droids that were kind of 3PO-like without just being another 3PO unit. This was like a cross between 3PO and... Who is that droid in the wheels story? Was it Master Com or whatever? Master Com. Yeah, he kind of looks like Master Com. So I thought that was neat. He also looks that panel where Leia's like standing right behind him. That's what is that? The third panel. He also looks like another classic robot who I just can't put my well, finger Metropolis. on. Metropolis. Yeah, it's yeah. A little closer to Metropolis in this one. Yeah, that's true. That was about it. There was a goofy panel, one thirty-two, where what? What the hell was that guy's name? Targus? Torgus? <laughs> he shoots Gimlet. He calls him a, he calls him Durain's foe sniffer. He says Durain's foe sniffer, and then he blasts him like foe sniffer. That's just a weird thing to call him. Playing beyond your capabilities, small fool. (laughs) I did think it was cool that he used a wrist blaster on him though to take him out. Because isn't that one of uh, one of Boba Fett's weapons? Is like a wrist blaster. I think I would have really loved this story or, or at least like really have held it in higher regard had I read it as a kid. Yes. Because yes, yes. in that era of stories that I love, you know, like Crimson Jack. We wouldn't have been like, I, I personally don't believe that this character would have like sold out Princess Leia. Right. Because A is an assassin. You have to have some level of honor too so that people know that once you hire them, they're not going to turn around and kill you. So it wouldn't be really good for his reputation to kill her, too, as, uh, of being reliable. Although, technically, I guess it would be. But, yeah, if I was a kid, I wouldn't have thought of that at all. I would have been like, holy cow. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I do. I just... Because I... Th- I, th- I like that he topples, like, a building or something, you know, <laughs> like a tree. He just, like, timber. Yep. I do like the look on his face, though when she the, when she shoots me. him. Yeah, he just he 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 has kind of a sad look on his face. Like I don't know. I, I, I was uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Was I mean was this his intention all along? Like he was just ready to be ready to die, and he wanted her to t- be the one to do it. I, I was well, trying to find so cynical and like and upset about his his whole family was killed. It might have been his way. Yeah, it might have been a way of committing suicide, and also being in such being the ultimate test for Princess Leia. Right. That maybe that's why he like killed the her like she didn't really get to kill her first kill, so he would be technically her first real kill. I don't know. It's it's not a bad story, but the yeah that ending is. I mean, reading it as an adult because I. This isn't my first time reading the story, but 
I didn't read it as a kid. I, I got it years later because it took yeah. me forever to track down those paperback reprints of this stuff. And I know I was an adult by the time I got it. So I read it many years later and, and just with a with a different eye than I would have read it. You know, had I read it concurrently with, you know, the other Infantino stuff that was coming out right around this, other, you know, this same time, I probably would hold it in a little bit higher regard. But it, it wasn't bad. I'm really looking forward to uh, the story next yeah. time around, though, because, uh, you know, the art's just, the art's beautiful in that next story. Yeah. Gene Day is the inker. But it's worth pointing out, too, that, uh, you know, we didn't get very many of them, but we did get a couple of pre-Star Wars, you know, pre-first movie tales during the early days of uh, of Marvel Star Wars. This kind of counts as another one, because this is very much like, it's very similar to the issue where uh, there's a flashback tale, again, told by Leia of the Clone Wars adventures of, uh, of young Obi-Wan. And this is a lot like that. You know, we had mm-hmm. that story, and then we had that story. It was a flashback to Luke on tattooing, you know, pre-Star Wars, which I thought was really cool. So there were a few of them. What's funny, though, is that this is supposed to be like young Princess Leia. She doesn't really look any different. No, no different at all. Same outfit, same hairstyle. It could only be a couple years ago, you know, a couple years back. But what did she say? She said it was like five years, though, or something like that. Did she say how many years? I I forget whether she said how many years it was. Do you think Infantino was aware of the whole there's no bras in space thing that that, uh, Lucas was so adamant about? No, he probably was not aware, but he just did. I think he just did his own thing as far as boobs go. Mm Mm-hmm. Since she was female, that's how he draws females. And God bless him. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's not... Here that make me think that he was not drawing her with a thing on underneath that dress. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Her dress is just basically only there because he draws wrinkles over her body. Right. Maybe this is the sort of thing that was giving Carrie Fisher the eating disorders, though. Because she's got, like, just a ridiculous waistline. Right. You know, it's 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 almost to the point of, like, caricature, a pin-up caricature. Right. Which, again, God bless him. <laughs> it's a space opera comic, so go to town, man. Correct. 
Kozak, all hands battle station. Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Are we ready to uh, whip into the world of Indiana Jones? I think we are. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist's thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones I will be doing the honors this month with further adventures of Indiana Jones. We're all the way up to number 15 already. Holy crap. Yeah. March of 1984. 60 centaroonies for the cover price. A uh, cover, I don't know who the inker is, covered by Herb Trimpy. Is it Trimpy or Trimp? It's Trimpy, isn't it? You know, I've heard it both ways. I think yeah. it's Trimpy. That's the way I hear it more, so I'm yeah. going to go with Trimpy. Uh, with a nice... Uh, <laughs> with Indiana Rubberlegs Jones. It it's obviously was drawn with a funhouse mirror in, in mind. And I got to tell you, when I first saw... When, when I read this lineup, okay, we got Dave Michelini's script, which, okay, standard. Herb Trimpy pencils and Vince Coletta inks. So I was just like, oh... oh. Jorizen Letters Robbie Coracella Colorist Elliot Brown is the editor And Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief This one is called The Sea Butchers Chapter 1 The Island of Peril And I gotta say For Herb Trimpey And Vince Coletta The art is not As bad as it could be (laughs) (laughs) What a glowing endorsement Yeah, yeah, yeah but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. So, okay. So, India's hired his old pal, Jock, to fly him over an Aleutian Island, which is off the Alaskan coast, and they're going to photograph a temple. His last a- name, by the way, is Strap, and I just think, come on, that's just tasteless. <laughs> it says here his name's Tober. Okay, anyway. India's hired his old pal Jock to fly him over an Aleutian island off Alaska to photograph a temple that may be of ancient Chinese origin. There's trouble. <laughs> Is that when they Calgon find... Island? I'm sorry. Exactly. There's, There's trouble when they uh, find a Japanese warship hovering offshore 
which dispatches a plane to shoot Jones down. Jones manages, though, to get his pictures down the Japanese plane with an old anchor and get away, but not without being semi-recognized by the Japanese captain, Hiroto! Indy sets up an exploratory mission to confirm his findings and recruits another old pal, Captain Katanga. And uh, he does this by bailing him and his crew out of jail. So Indy discusses a plan with Katanga, but another prisoner is listening with interest. As they are about to board the Bantu Wind, they are attacked by thugs, who sort of focus on Indy, and he leads them on a merry chase through buildings, out windows, through kitchens and alleyways, until Katanga and his men finally drive off the pursuers, and they decide to push off immediately to avoid any further entanglements. So... They get in the ship, and when they get near the island, Hiroto pulls up and boards the ship, basically to just sort of, under under the table, tell Katanga and Jones that he's on to whatever, whatever kind of shenanigans are up to. But there's nothing he can do, so he just sort of, uh, just sort of says that and does a, does a little Columbo and then leaves. And uh, so they land and they set out set out with a party to go find the temple. Which they do, but it is already being plundered by pirates led by the hottie Esmeralda Vasquez. Jones distracts her with some sweet talk. See, I thought that too. I thought it was Esmeralda. It's Emeralda. Yeah, and then on the next page, or a couple pages later, she says something to one of her goons. And he says, Emeralda. Oh, here it is. It's when she orders this execution. She, She says, Rodolfo? And he says, Da! Emerald and I thought, ooh, they spelled her name wrong. So then I went back and looked, and then that's when I realized it wasn't Esmeralda. Oh. Just anyway. thought that worth pointing out, because Emerald is a weird name. I don't know that yes, I've ever is. heard that before. He was just trying to be different. <laughs> Emerald Vasquez. So Jones distracts her with a little banter and sweet talks, and then smashes out the lights, allowing them to escape in the dark. But when they leave the temple, they're cut off by heavy gunfire from a submarine. It is Emerald's submarine. She's stolen it from the U.S. government. She and her men cold-bloodedly slice the throat of one of Katanga's men just to show him that she means business. She orders him to get his band together and disarm themselves and takes Jones off and buries him up to his neck in the sand so that he can drown in the tide, Ted Danson style. That is, if the hundreds of crabs converging on him don't eat him alive first. And we're talking real crabs with shells, not Emeralda. (laughs) (laughs) Casey picked up from Marion last month. Next issue, Indy's got crabs. (laughs) Indy goes to the doctor. Indiana Jones in the waiting room of Dr. Feldstein. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man well <sighs> I was as soon as I saw Herb Trimpey and Vince Coletta I was I really I was just like okay here's the spot where it jumps the yep. shark <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here it but, is here's that shark jumping spot right here but I gotta say the story's okay and the art is okay 
and this one. It's not a strong comic by any stretch of the imagination, but it is not as bad as I thought it was. Is it the the opening actually rubber legs or not? Like the cover is pretty. I I like the inking on it. I like the detail of it. It's sort of. It seems like everybody's been trying to capture the John Byrne, Terry Austin feel of the first couple episodes as much as they can. So it's right. it's it's got a little of that that draftsmanship style to it, and like even the opening page with the two planes flying by each other, that's a pretty nicely rendered drawing. Well, see, going back to the cover for just a moment, I suspect that the cover is Trimpy alone. I, mm-hmm. I think he did okay. the entire cover. And I, I have no evidence for that um, beyond Mike's Amazing World only cre- credits just Trimpy solo as the as the cover artist. But I I just I see cross hatching, I see shading, I see a yeah. lot of things that you don't see in a in a, a Coletta inking job. Mm-hmm. But look at that look at the clouds on that front first page and even the it's it it reminds me of the terry austin workout over john burns pencils hmm i i see what you're going for but i will never compare coletta to terry austin dude terry I, just, austin. I can't i can't do it I well can't you can say it. he's trying to emulate him right I mean, for, I mean, this was not the, I mean, okay, so then we get to the second page, the first one where you see Indiana Jones talking, faces, talking faces are a lot of times what kills Herb Trimpy for me, you know, that everybody starts looking like a G.I. Joe action figure, (laughs) you know, and I mean, look at Jock, he's just like, he's, he looks like, um, Oh, what was like Terry and the Pirates or something? You know, right, yeah. It, it, it's that's not what Jock looked like. Yeah, where's his Yankees ball cap? Yeah, exactly. That was my first note was where the hell is Jock's Yankee ball cap? Not only is he not flying the right it's plane, a generic guy. Because the you know his his plane in the movie had what what the hell was the number on it? It was like CE three K or CPO yeah. or something. It was either a reference to to. Close Encounters or Star Wars or some mixture, something like that. It was not what this one is here, which I couldn't make anything of. It's G-CFO or CFD, one of the two. Maybe there's a code there, but I couldn't figure out what the hell it's supposed to be. But that's not the same plane. There is a mention of the snake, which isn't with them, which I thought was pretty cool. But that's just not... That's not jock. It's too far. It was like... It's nice that they were throwing that little nod in there, but they didn't need to do it. Mm-hmm. it this could have been just anybody. I do wish that uh, somebody on the Japanese carrier had been ho- screaming uh, Hollywood, though. I, th- I thought that would have been really <laughs> a nice little nod to 1941. If they, you know, that would have been funny. It is a good takedown, though. It's an interesting idea of having, you know, Indy drags that ship's anchor behind them and rips the plane like a grappling hook yeah yeah. rips the wings off the other plane but what what is it that makes jock's plane sturdier than the japanese plane how did indy know that by doing that that he wouldn't just rip the bottom out of his plane it but in reality both planes would jerk in opposite directions you know it would probably 
taking yeah. this out. And I mean, I hope Indy's not like. I hope he's got it tied to something, and that's not Indy just holding on to it because he's got his arms right out of their sockets, man. Right. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, why? Why would a? Oh, it's a sea. Okay, I was thinking, why the hell would a plane have an anchor? But it's a seaplane, so I guess that makes sense, right? Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Well, (laughs) he doesn't say the ship. Say he's like this old rusty sea anchor, right? And it, well, I guess you would have a. I guess Jock would have an old rusty sea anchor on his, on his boat anyway. But just, I mean, it's quite a big thing to be sitting at your feet, and it's sharp. I don't know, right? <laughs> but you know, that's it is. It's a neat scene. Like, like I said, I don't think the art is like. Maybe as a kid, I was like, "Ooh, this art," but. Look at on on the on the page where he's first throwing out the grappling hook and they're maneuvering to where he can get him. I like how they ke- the if you see the it's just a simple thing, but it's a line of the sea, and it's tilting one way and then it's almost level and then it's tilting the other way and it just gives it a good feel of how they move, you know, of how planes are moving, they're maneuvering. It gives you a little extra. It, it does, except for one thing. It also <laughs> perfectly illustrates my complaint, and I, and I feel like this is probably the the main complaint of most people that have an issue with Coletta, is that he's a minimalist. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard it explained that he was a minimalist because he was just damn lazy, and he was also he had this reputation of being like. You know, the fastest inker in the West. You know, he just, if if you were under a tight deadline and you just had to get shit done, he was your man. Well, he was your man because he was slapdash. You know, uh-huh. he, he did, just didn't believe in detail. So while I agree with you that those three panels are very dynamic in the way that they're telling the story visually and it, it feels like a dogfight, at the same time, if you linger over the panels too long, you come to realize... Holy shit, there's nothing but a line here. That's yeah. all it is. Is just Yeah, that's sort of what Klaus Jansen would do too. Yeah. But it's not as stylized as Klaus Jansen. It, it ends up looking cheaper instead of just like Ooh, look what this guy did with so few lines. But also for Vince Coletta there seems to be a little more a little more detail in this in places. You know, there's there's definitely right. more like the like the two panels of uh, Hiroto. He's like just taking letters out of other characters' names because he's almost Hirohito. Right. But he's just Hiroto. But, like, I mean, that shot of him looking through the, the glasses and then going, hmm, I seem to remember who this person is, is fairly detailed. It could be worse, which you know, <laughs> yes. when you said yeah. that at the beginning, that, well, that's what know. I'm thinking. I'm, I did. I came into this. I really was dreading reading this. As soon as I saw that, I was. Uh, I, I I looked at this the day before I was going to read it, and then I was just like, "Oh God, I shouldn't have looked at this the day before. I should have just gone ahead and read it because now I know I'm looking forward to her." Because I remember the art took a a a big hit, and I was just like, "Here it comes," mm-hmm. and. uh and when I was a kid, I definitely would have been like, ooh, you know, stinkeroony. But now, I'm a little, I guess I'm a little more forgiving now 
and it wasn't as painful. I just don't like his faces. They're generic. Yes. They remind me of bad drawings on action of action figures. One of my missions in rereading all this for review was to also try to figure out, try to answer a, a longstanding question of if I didn't like this as much as I remembered not liking it, why the hell did I stick around? I mean, I collected every issue. I, I never bailed. But why did I stick around so long? I mean, it couldn't have simply been, gee, I just, you know, I keep hoping it's going to get better because I'm not that patient a person. I'm telling you, you Michelini know? has, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. He still has a, just a good idea of the flow right. of an Indiana Jones story. Right. And so if the art's suffering a little bit, it's still, it's moving, everything's moving along, mm-hmm. you know, and the yeah. story's developing. Yeah, the story, the story's not bad. The story kept me interested. It was nice to see particular characters Katanga. again. Yeah. Katanga, yeah, seeing Katanga again uh, was very interesting. And he's a And he's a realistic character to bring back, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a mention of Sala also. Well, I like that too. That that Michelini remembered mm-hmm. to explain why Katanga wasn't surprised or more surprised to see Indy turn up, especially turn up alive in this story. Because remember, in the movie, the last time Katanga sees Jones, he's you know swimming he's to the swimming to a sub. submarine, and you know I'm sure he thought, well, that's the last of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, so, dude. <laughs> yeah. you know, Nikolai explained it that oh, by the way, you know our our mutual friend Sala told me that you know you survived that whole adventure, so you know good on you, kind of thing. I like that. Well, I like yeah. that thought you know thought to do that. Katanga's a little nicer in the comic book, or not as hard edge. But then again, he just did get bailed out of jail by Indiana Jones, so he might be a little more. Uh, <laughs> I like up. that uh, toward the end of the story here, there was. Uh, I, I don't know if it was intentional on uh, Michelini's part or not, but I kind of read it that way. There's the moment where Jones, you know, it, 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 the issue ends on a cliffhanger with Jones buried up to his neck, the tide's coming in, and then these killer crabs are coming to get him. And he says, uh, you know, he's thinking about how bad his situation is. He, he says, guess I should look on the bright side, though. At, le- at least things couldn't be worse. And then he sees the crabs, and he says, they're worse. So it goes from, you know, it could be worse to it's worse. Which is a Star Wars. Star movie. Wars, yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, in the trash compactor. Leia says, you know, I could be worse. And then Han says, you know, after he hears the noise, he says it's worse. <laughs> so, again, I don't know that he did that intentionally, but knowing the two franchises, I just, I thought that was a nice little, a nice little nod, whether intentional or not. No, my, my CBR doesn't have any numbers. Right. But check out Katanga. Right after he saves Jones and they set sail at the bottom of the page. Doesn't he look like a 10-year-old kid? <laughs> there is his binoculars there. It's a weird, that's a weird. He looks like a 10-year-old kid looking through his binoculars and shivering. He's got shiver lines all over. It's just, it's strange. Yes, yeah. All of a sudden he, yeah, he did. He regressed to a, to a it's like a little kid. Yeah. Well, Maybe this is an unfair criticism, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
it annoyed me greatly that he had exactly the same outfit on from Raiders. Now I know. Well, it's he's there. a captain of a ship. That's his. Is his... that a captain's outfit? Because it looks like. No, that's his cat. He's a pirate captain. He dresses in his. He, he's, he's, and and I mean literally, he's a character in a movie. But right. he's a character. When you're someone like that, you're a character. Because I I totally would understand him dressing in the same outfit because with you know you're living on reputation and stuff like Han Solo you would always right. want to dress in the ve- in the vest and you know and like the Fonz you know <laughs> when you go someplace you want people you know that's what's missing from this issue is Katanga going hey, glad I could help you out Indy but I mean you know yeah Katanga like has deals with people and all over the place so when he shows up in the Earth version of Moss Eisley, you know, you, the, people go like, oh, there he is. You know, I th- there's a guy that I dealt with last year when I had to send the illegal shipment of this there. So I totally could see him having a closet full of stripy shirts <laughs> and, you know, like four hats. Yeah, it's the, actually that hat's probably like Indy's hat. Well, look at—he and Indy are both in their costumes, you know. They're right. Their, yeah. They're in their work clothes. Right. I guess it just seemed a little, a little weird to me. And it also works visually for us viewers, you know, to recognize him as there he is, looking like he did in Raiders. I just realized. Something here. I think uh, I think the colorist didn't get a memo or something because looking all the way back to the cover, I think that's supposed to be Katanga right behind Indy. Yes, and not only oh. is color completely wrong. He's a white yeah. guy, hat and the stripy shirt. Yeah, but yeah. he's a white guy. Yeah, yeah. I guess there'd really be no way of telling as the colorist without. Bother! It just says the colors didn't bother to read the rest of the comic. Look at the as you look at the attackers in the background. The fifth one from the left isn't he a member of the village people? <laughs> I think it co- <laughs> I think that the first one there is like an opera singer, <laughs> and I think that's Luke Skywalker all the way on the far right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the from the old school right. Star Wars. Covers. <laughs> it's either it's either one of the village people or Freddie Mercury, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, definitely Freddie Mercury. <laughs> or it could be the guy from. Um, it could be Rob Halford too from uh, Judas Priest. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it's it's not bad. It's just I don't know. I mean, given the artist, like you said, you know, because I, I had the same exact reaction opening this up. I was like, oh, God. Yeah. And <laughs> <given> that... <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> given that reaction and given who it is, it it could have been worse. So, yeah. you know, I, I think, honestly, now this is going to sound like me. Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, number 15. Could have been worse. <laughs> Could have been worse. You know, this is going to sound like me totally kissing ass, but I, I mean it sincerely. I think it's it's Michelini that saves. Oh yeah. Him. If the story had been just total crap too, then then maybe not. Oh. 
Yeah. But, but no, you can see the flow. Like the 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 whole merry chase through the town is is classic. It's him going from right. one thing to another. Oh, and then I I jump out a window. Oh, cantaloupe. So I'm in a kitchen. Oh, somebody's trying to put my head in boiling water. You know. Because you know, God bless him. He's trying. You know, oh, he's. He He's, he also is capturing the sadisticness of you know Indy horribly burns one guy's hand. Um, Emeralda's men just like I I, I think it, it it looks you know I I think they like slit his throat, but the way they portray it, it looks like they're just sort of like gouging out his throat. You know, right, yeah, they they just cold bloodedly take that guy out and that's very raiders like you know raiders was a bloody bloody violent murder filled movie and happily this is too katanga's men just open fire on the guys chasing indy you know no messing around right see it's gonna be a little while yeah a few more issues yet but we're we're slowly headed to a point where uh uh, well, first we'll get a story without him, you know, just a one-shot issue. But then after that, you know, he's off the book. And that's the point where I think is, is going to be the true test. You know, when, when you've got not only is the art really not there, but then your your writer who's been holding the whole thing together the whole time, now he's not there either, you know. It's going to be fun to examine it because I think one of the things that they were doing late in the series run to just try to keep some forward momentum going is that they started to throw some just spectacular covers at us. And it's just a shame. You know, this this type of thing, you know, it was just one of those things that comics did back then where... I think they sometimes I think the comic companies were actually consciously aware that the interior wasn't all that great. So they would give you a really awesome cover. Oh, sure. Sell the book. And yeah, you know, come on, it's a business. I can understand that. But at the same rate, it's like if you know your your interior product is inferior product, just putting a, a, a nice coat of paint on it. Is that enough? I wish that they had applied some of that beautiful art that's on these covers to the interiors. I mean, I'm trying to remember what the hell Michael Golden was working on at the time, but some of those Golden covers late in this series are freaking gorgeous. Yet, you know, the interior was just, you know, some really rough and bad stuff in some cases. So, I don't know. It's it's very curious. It'd be interesting to see. Curiouser and curiouser. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see, you know, when we get to that stuff. I'm looking here, trying to just gain an idea of what um, Golden was doing at the time when uh, these Indiana Jones issues were coming out, but I'm not I'm not seeing steady steady work here. Maybe he was getting ready for the for when the nom got published. I'm not sure, but he's he's one of those guys that never really seemed to have a steady gig for too awful long. Anyway, beyond Micronauts, which again didn't. Well, run I bet you it took him a long through. time to draw stuff. See, I think he's one of those classic artists that's very slow. 
mm-hmm. and that's why he just never, you know, had, you know, all that many issues really. Yeah, he put a lot of work into it, but it showed, you know, then oh, yeah. his, you know, his value, you know, his, yeah, his body of work is pretty much uniformly awesome. Mm-hmm. God, I'm looking at the whole scene where they kill one of Katanga's men, the McWirty. <laughs> and the guy, he, he actually looks like he's like some, like just the nicest British guy you would ever see. <laughs> And then you see his hand with pools of blood around it, just twitching on twitching, the ground. Yeah. It is pretty, cr- pretty gruesome because, yeah. granted, they don't show anything other but than he the, goes, the yeah, black slices. That's just horrible. What's worse too is that, you know, you can infer anything from that off-panel whatever they because. I, I think at first the the natural thought is oh he just he slit his throat but he could you know by the angle of his elbow he right. might be jabbing him in the throat with it the looks thing like too. he's just sort of like Bleh. yeah and he's yeah the movement lines make it look like he's just sort of like stuck the knife in wiggling it around in the guy's throat <laughs> <laughs> That's nasty. and look at that knife too man that knife is longer than McWordy's head <laughs> poor McWordy. Poor guy, never did nothing, nobody. Nope. Well, I'm sure he's on a pirate ship. He must have done something to somebody, but gee, Willikers. <laughs> no! To see he will uh, be avenge McWordy, I'm sure of it. Emeralda has, uh, has skull earrings. Did you notice that? Yes. Uh, yeah, she looks very like um, Prince Valiant character she that re- last panel of Indy doing the like oh yes I will get revenge like, is not bad either that's probably one of the best that's probably the best trimpy face in this comic are you talking but, the sad indie face there the, uh, it's sad but there's also a little bit of him thinking you know McWordy you will be avenged <laughs> I don't know how yet these things just sort of work themselves out. I like when you turn the page and then the very next panel is so that's a classic. He's up to his neck and saying, I can't move! <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Lord. I forgot to mention that, that um, also Katanga takes a dive off his own ship. And is presumed dead. Presumed dead, but as we know with Kiro, when you jump in the water, even if you see a little <laughs> blood, no body, no dead Katanga. Yeah, this the crab scene sort of reminds me of, uh, and I've only read the first two books, but the first book of the Stephen King gunslinger, remember the crab data check? Oh god, I I I read the first two or three of those and remember not a damn thing yeah, about the them. Yeah, the same here. I I read the first two and then part of the third and then like left it for years and then started it all over again and read up to the same part in the third one. And it's not that I wasn't enjoying it, but that's the one thing that I remember out of the whole thing is those crab creatures that would just like people's fingers off hmm don't remember that at all 
So yeah, this I, I'm actually I'm pretty interested to see how Indy gets out of this one. I liked your uh, Ted Danson reference as well. That's yes. that's the first thing I always think of when somebody's buried up to their neck awaiting the tide to come in. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good that it's that and not some personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some other movies where that happened, but that's probably the most memorable one, at least to me. <laughs> Oh, that's what would have made this story that much better, is at the very end of the issue, if he had pulled a, a Leslie Nielsen going, I can hold my breath a long time. <laughs> Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please, use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Don't forget to review Two True Freaks on iTunes. Thank you for listening.